You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Scientists, like everyone else, need money to do their work, and some of that comes from the government. So when astrobiologists have a project that needs urgent attention, and we mean urgent, they might go straight to the top for support, the prez. President, our intelligence tells us the object is settled into a stationary orbit. Where are they heading? They should be entering our atmosphere within the next 25 minutes. That is, if the biology in astrobiology has evil intent and it's hovering above your planet in a nasty-looking spacecraft, your president is Bill Pullman and Will Smith is your plan A, B, and C for saving the world. Well, with those boundary conditions, you can get all the support you need. Yeah, well, I don't think they're really going to come here like that. But if only they would, that would make studying them so much easier. But for now, research into extraterrestrial life is pretty much limited to finding it out there, in our solar system and beyond. And it involves some darn sophisticated technology to study the composition and the nature of distant worlds and clues they might offer that life is present. To fund that kind of research, scientists still go to Washington, but they don't quite make it to the White House portico. They go east, along the mall, to the Capitol building. They go to Congress. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science, where we step back to give you the wide-angle view of science and technology. And in this hour, the intersection of scientific research and funding. Recent exciting discoveries have made the hunt for alien life more promising, but they call for follow-up missions, and so will we follow through? Congress is not known for its scientific expertise. While the House and Senate have 173 lawyers, the number of scientists can be counted on one hand. There are not many. And yet, Congress decides on funding for scientific research, whether it be medical studies at the NIH, development of new energy sources at the DOE, environmental research at the EPA, public health at the CDC, basic science at the NSF, or Earth, space, and aeronautics at NASA. So how do they decide just what to fund? Sometimes they start by asking the scientists themselves to update them on their research. In May, the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology held a hearing to discuss the steps that scientists have taken to search for intelligent life in space. And they invited two researchers to testify in a session with a very broad title, Astrobiology and the Search for Life in the Universe. Seth was one of the two scientists. 
So Mr. Shostak went to Washington, and we can picture the scene. An earnest American makes an impassioned plea to do the right thing before a room of cynical congressmen. He's fatigued, his hair disheveled. The viewing public gives him an occasional sympathetic look. What does the gentleman want on his body? I'll tell you what I want, sir. I want a chance to talk to people who believe me. The people of my state, they know me, and they know Mr. Taylor, and when they hear my story, they'll rise up and they'll kick Mr. Taylor's machine to kingdom come. And I'll tell you one thing, that wild horses aren't going to drag me off this floor until those people have heard everything I've got to say, even if it takes all winter. Well, Seth, when you made your case before Congress, did uh, Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington pretty much capture your experience? Well, yes, it was uh, pretty similar. I mean, except for the fact that uh, I'm not a senator and I didn't filibuster and I wasn't in the Congress, but I did wear a suit like Jimmy Stewart did. Okay. Um, Well, you wear a few different hats. You are an astronomer, you're a science advocate for SETI, and you're also a member of the media when you host an interview on this radio show. In what capacity were you asked to go to Washington? As a uh, SETI researcher, actually. They wanted uh, specific information about radio SETI. Okay. And you were asked to go along with Dan Wertheimer. He's the director of the SETI Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. And Why did the House Science Committee want to hear from you guys about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, they've been having hearings over the course of the past six months or so about astrobiology in general. They've had uh, several people testify, and they wanted to hear about SETI as well. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're tuned in. They, They know that planets are being found. They've heard these stories. Were you and Dan Wertheimer there to ask for research funds specifically? No, we were there simply to inform the committee about uh, the status of SETI, where it was likely to go, and something about the public's interest. We have some clips of your testimony. I don't know if you knew that it was recorded. I did know that, yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I'm wondering if you could set up this first clip for us. Well, this was at the beginning of my testimony, and I simply wanted to set the stage and answer a very fundamental question. Why would anybody think that there is life out there, intelligent or otherwise, Recent results from NASA's Kepler telescope, an astoundingly successful instrument, suggest that one in five stars may have planets that are cousins of the Earth. What that means is that in our own galaxy, there are tens of billions of other planets that are the kind you might want to build condos on and live. All right. Okay, tens of billions. And if that isn't adequate for your uh, requirements, let me point out there are 150 billion other galaxies we can see with our telescopes, each with a similar complement of Earth-like worlds. What that means is that the, the numbers are so astounding that if this is the only planet in which not only life but intelligent life has arisen, then we are extraordinarily exceptional. And although everybody likes to think that they're special, and I'm sure you all are, maybe we're not that special. Certainly the history of astronomy shows that every time we thought we were special, we were wrong. We heard a bit of laughter there from a congressman. Who, who was that? That was Chairman Lamar Smith, in fact. <laughs> were, you, were you nervous? Um, I, you know, I was very sleepy. Uh, it was a jet lag problem and so forth, but uh, I wasn't particularly nervous, no. Did you find that the congressmen and women's questions were well-informed? Well, in general, they were, yes, indeed. I mean, they'd read the preliminary, or many of them had read our preliminary statements that we had submitted days earlier, written statements. Some of the reports after the hearings suggested that some of the questions had been fed by popular images of aliens in movies and television. Is that true? Well, there was at least one question, which was a reference to ancient aliens, which is a television show that suggests that, for example, the pyramids might have been built with alien help, that kind of thing. But there actually were very few of these. 
So there was that. But what I tried to do was point out that, yes, people think of aliens on the basis of what they've seen in the popular media. But this is exploration. The consequences are very significant. And I wanted to make that point. This is very interesting to the public because they've seen extraterrestrials on television uh, and in the movies all their lives. Okay, That also gives it a certain giggle factor. It's very easy to make fun of this. On the other hand, it would have been easy to make fun of Ferdinand Magellan's idea to sail around the Earth or Captain Cook to map the South Pacific. It's exploration. That's what this is. The consequences are always shall we say, salubrious. And what's important is this is the first generation that has both the knowledge and the technology to do that. Thank you, Dr. Shostak. You know, there were some, there were some criticisms that Congress is, is holding hearings on aliens, Congress is holding hearings on astrobiology, when what it should be doing is discussing matters of urgency here on Earth, such as climate change. And now these are the sort of questions that you get a lot about funding in general. Why should NASA fund missions to the moon or even a mission to Mars uh, when what it should be doing and where our money should be going is to solving urgent problems on Earth? How do you respond to these questions of either or? Well, to begin with, it shouldn't be an either or question. And secondly, one should always look at the, the magnitude of the expenditure. I mean, what we spend on things like, you know, health, education and welfare and so forth, it's just thousands of times larger than what we're spending on any of these research programs. That's point one. But the second thing is you always have to do things that are a little bit out of the box. Exploration, fundamental research, these are things that often don't pay off in the short term, but always pay off in the long term. Just think of the great age of exploration. Okay, we have one more clip, and I wonder if you could set this up. Who was the the questioner in this case? Well, this was Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson, and she asked a really very important question. The first person to respond to the Congresswoman's question was Dan Wertheimer. Now, when we find the other life on other planets, what do you speculate we'd find and what is the value or potential value? Um, I think it's profound either way. Um, this, is, this is not an expensive thing. Uh, it's uh, of order a million dollars a year. We, we're funded by National Science Foundation, NASA, Templeton Foundation, some private donations. Uh, the reason I think it's profound either way, if we if we discover that we are alone, we better take really good care of life on this planet. It's very precious. Uh, and the other thing is profound too. If we if we are find that we're part of a galactic community and get on the galactic internet and learn all their poetry, music, literature, science, uh, we could learn a lot. I'll just add briefly, nobody knows what we'll learn. Uh, if we can decode the signal, this is sort of like being confronted with the hieroglyphics. You know, you, you might be able to figure them out. In the case of the hieroglyphics, wasn't so hard. Turns out the hieroglyphics were written by humans, so that made it a lot easier. And there was also the Rosetta Stone and whatever. So we might not ever figure it out, okay? If you could, you will be listening to data being sent by societies that are far in advance of us, because we're hearing them, not the other way around. But even if we don't, the important point has been made, and that is we have calibrated our place not in the physical universe, we've sort of done that, but calibrated our place in the biological and, and even more the intellectual universe. And I think that that's maybe good for our souls to know how we fit in. Thank you very much. My time has expired. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Well, finally, you made a claim, a date by which we'll find alien life. Would you like to repeat that here? Yes. Well, I suggested that we'll find something in the next couple of decades, and I do think that that's possible. Uh, we have lots of experiments to find uh, life nearby, and uh, SETI might succeed in that time frame, too. And you got some pushback for that, didn't you? I did. I've gotten some pushback, but, you know, it's based on the speed at which our experiments are getting better. So uh, I'll stand by it.
Well, Seth, thank you for your comments. You are now dismissed. Is that what they said to you? You're now dismissed? I don't remember them saying that, but I've been dismissed many times in my life. Okay. So you can continue your role as host of this program. And by the way, you can find a video clip of Seth and Dan's testimony on our blog at bigpicturescience.org. As we've heard, there have been a number of discoveries that have quickened the pulses of scientists who hunt for alien life, and that made the congressional hearing relevant. An analysis of Kepler data has suggested there could be tens of billions of Earth-like planets orbiting other stars just in our galaxy. That is abundant real estate for alien life. But then earlier this year, the first confirmed Earth-like planet in the habitable zone of its star, Kepler-186f. Now, one of the discoverers of the planet, astrobiologist Elisa Quintana, said that this came after scientists sifted through worlds that weren't quite right. So we found planets that are Earth-sized that orbit too close to their stars, so they're too hot. So they looked for planets that were farther from their stars. We found planets in their star's habitable zone, but all of these have been too large. And then the discovery of Kepler-186f in the Goldilocks zone, a planet that is both Earth-sized and orbits in its star's habitable zone. Elisa Quintana and other scientists identified this planet with a method somewhat like a moth flying in front of a flashlight. Only in this case, the blocked rays are very far away, and the object blocking them is a planet. Kepler monitors the brightness of stars. If a planet passes in front of the star, we measure the dip in the starlight that happens. And from that dip in the starlight, we can measure the size of the planet relative to the size of the star. And so for Kepler-186f, we were able to say it has a radius of 1.1 times the radius of Earth with uncertainties of 0.14. So So in other words, if you were an inhabitant of Kepler-186f, if there are any and you were among them and you took a around-the-world airplane ride, Mm -hmm. uh, a ride that would take maybe 24 hours here on Earth, depending on what latitude you did that at, uh, it would take 26, 27 hours. They're hardly any different. That's correct. Okay. So it's about the same size. Now, the important thing about Kepler-186f, a thing that gives it a gold star, is not that it's just the same size, as you mentioned. It's also because it might have the same sorts of temperatures. So how do you know that? Nobody's got a thermometer up there. (laughs) Well, from the starlight, we can measure the distance from a star that a planet can receive an amount of starlight that would allow uh, water to be in liquid form if it was on that planet. So Kepler-186f is just at the right distance from the star where it's warm enough. If it has water, it can have water in liquid form. So it's in this nice Goldilocks spot. Okay, so neither perpetually freezing, neither perpetually boiling. And you know how far it is because you know how long it takes this planet to go around its star. That's right. And uh, I guess you just use some physics that this guy, Johann Kepler, worked out about four (laughs) centuries ago, whatever. Okay, so so it's in what's called the habitable zone. And I think there are three people in the world who haven't heard this term so far. But but that's just the Goldilocks zone where the planet is, you know, in a place where the temperatures might be the same and downtown uh, New York. But if I go on the web, Lisa, and I type in, you know, into my favorite search engine, uh, habitable planet, I find something like uh, 10 or 20 planets that are claimed already to be habitable. What distinguishes Kepler-186f, your discovery here, from, from all these other guys? The main difference is the size of this planet. It's the first planet that is Earth-sized. All of these other planets have been at least 40% larger than Earth. And that's large enough where we don't know 
if these planets can have the same characteristics as Earth. Um, maybe they're in a, an area that, if they were rocky, they could have liquid water. But once you get these larger super-Earths, um, we don't know if we still have the internal layers, like a core and a mantle and all of these features that Earth has um, that allow the existence of oceans and atmospheres and plate tectonics. All we do know is Earth. We have a planet the size of Earth here that does have life. So when we look for other planets that could support life, you know, we look for ones that are the size of Earth and, you know, could have the right temperatures. So so the problem with these also RANs, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the news stories are big about Kepler-186f is that it isn't so much bigger than the Earth that you suspect it might be like, I don't know, Neptune or, or something, some other planet that, as far as we can tell, is not very amenable to biology. That's right. Okay, well, all right. So... Um, I've seen the artistic renderings of this planet. There are several. <laughs> and I guess the most famous one was uh, cooked up by NASA, and it's a pretty nifty-looking world. It's, you know, sunlit uh, world with, uh, I don't know, continents and oceans and who knows what else down right. there. <laughs> but is there any, you know, real rationale for that, or is it just sort of the fantasy of the artist? Uh, so that was more for fun. What we did is we talked about, okay, if it is rocky and Earth-like, if it does have an Earth-like atmosphere, what would it look like given that it orbits a star that is smaller and cooler and it's known as a red dwarf? This red dwarf emits less visible light. It peaks in the near-infrared, so it's a very different environment. So we worked with these artists to talk about the colors. Obviously, with this M dwarf, you wouldn't have bright blue oceans or lush land like you do here on Earth. So the oceans could have maybe a little bit of blue, but it'd be murkier and darker. So this was all more for fun. And so we were very clear that this was an artist's concept. Uh, most people printed that when they printed articles about it. So this was more just for a fun, what would it look like under an M-dwarf environment? But, but fess up, uh, Lisa, we don't know that it has oceans, do we? No, no, we don't. We don't have the mass. Kepler does not measure mass. We only measure the size. So without the mass, we don't know its composition. Okay. But still in all, I mean, people are very interested in this discovery because of the obvious possibility that it might be inhabited, that there might be life down there. Maybe not intelligent life, maybe intelligent life. It looks like a duck. It, as far as we know, it quacks like a duck. So the question is... Is it a duck? And, and can we ever find that out for this planet? Uh, can, can we learn whether there's any biology on Kepler-186f? Um, well, Kepler-186f is quite far. It's at 500 light years away from Earth. So follow-up is very difficult. We know the size of the planet. We know its distance. Trying to do any follow-up are very unlikely, um, one, because the star is very dim, and dwarfs are dim. But also, these planets are too small to perturb each other, where you can actually detect more information and possibly get a mass or anything else. So our best bets are to look for planets like Kepler-186f that orbit M-dwarfs that are closer to us. And so NASA's test mission, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, will be launching in a few years. It will be looking at nearby M-dwarfs to find planets like Kepler-186f. And then the follow-up James Webb Space Telescope will be targeting those planets that Tess finds and is going to try to probe into their atmospheres and look for biomarkers and sort of that next step. So Kepler-186f is more of a proof of concept. We now know that Earth-sized planets in the habitable zones of other stars are there. Hopefully we'll find some that are more nearby that we can do some better follow-up with. 
Elisa Quintana, thanks so very much for coming into the studio and talking with us today. Oh, thank you. This is fun. Elisa Quintana is a research scientist at the SETI Institute and at NASA Ames. Coming up, why one scientist calls Kepler-186F a hootering and hollering moment in the hunt for alien life. It's a new hope for life in space on Big Picture Science. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What do you say? White House is coming out live. My fellow Americans, this is a momentous occasion. It is profoundly moving to know there is intelligent life out there. Alien life. And our world will never feel quite the same again. Once you believe. Martians, Martians, please come to Earth, please. Yes, Martians, please come to Earth, please. Well, Earth seems to be a really hot tourist attraction for Red Planet residents. So how did the hostile visit by Martians play out in the sci-fi film Mars Attacks? Well, we defeat the invaders by exploding their heads with high-pitched music. And what's true for Hollywood is at least partially true for scientists. Mars has always been everyone's favorite possibly inhabited planet, except that we've been invading Mars, rather than the other way around, with orbiters, landers, and rovers. Mars has been the star of astrobiology, or at least the star planet. But maybe not anymore. Its rusty luster may have dimmed. At least according to some astrobiologists. Chris McKay says the discovery of Kepler-186f made that world a top candidate for hosting life, as are some of the moons of the outer solar system. New gravity data, for example, further support the existence of a hidden liquid aquifer on Saturn's moon Enceladus. In other words, Mars is not the only kid on the block anymore. I'm Chris McKay. I'm a space scientist at NASA Ames, and my interest is in what we now call astrobiology, basically the search for life on other worlds. And I'm particularly interested in the finding of life that's different from our life, aliens. I really want to find something that's not on our tree of life. How long have you been an astrobiologist? Well, I came to Ames as a student. Ames has always been the place where NASA's focused its astrobiology, even before we called it astrobiology. And I came here because of that. So, in a sense, I've been doing astrobiology since before we called it astrobiology. Well, let's talk about some discoveries that may bode well for the future of finding life off this planet. And one is the discovery of Kepler-186f. I think NASA may need to work on its names here. But that is an Earth-sized planet uh, that might be habitable that the Kepler spacecraft discovered. Can you give us, Chris, an overview of this discovery of this planet and how significant it is in the hunt for alien life? What's important about Kepler-186f is that it is an Earth-sized world. The second thing that's interesting about this world is it's the right distance from its star to have the sort of temperature we have here on Earth. So we don't know exactly what the surface temperature is because Kepler doesn't measure that directly. But we know the distance to the star. We know how bright the star is. And so we have an Earth-sized planet at the right distance from a star. That's very exciting. To me, I describe that as there's a house. 
we're not sure anybody's living in the house, but that's a house. Well, how far is it from us? If you could go the speed of light, which we cannot do, how long right. would it take you to go to 186F? It's about 500 light years from us. So it would take 500 years to get there and, and presumably 500 years to get back. So for now, we will investigate it by telescopes. And that could be exciting. Now, say more about why this planet could be habitable. You talked about temperature, the possibility of an atmosphere. What are the other conditions, as far as we know, that makes the planet habitable? And also, don't we keep in mind that life is pretty hardy? I mean, that is our understanding on Earth, and it can survive many different conditions. So how does that inform the definition of habitability? Well, we, we do have an impression from Earth that life is tough, but that's because we live on an Earth that's soft. And what I mean by soft is it's got water everywhere. And when we really look at life, that is the operational constraint. It needs liquid water. When we look beyond the Earth, though, we realize how unusual liquid water is. In fact, we don't see it on any other world, on the surface of any other world in our solar system. Uh, and life requires liquid water to grow or reproduce. Organisms can be dormant without water, but to grow or reproduce, Every life form we've studied needs basically to be its biochemistry within liquid water. So when we look at a world like 186F, the first question we ask is, does it have conditions that could support liquid water? And that's primarily a temperature and pressure constraint. The pressure has to be high, high enough to stabilize liquid, and the temperature has to be within the range to keep water liquid. So. 186F potentially meets that requirement. That's really all we know about it. Now, since we cannot visit 186F, at least in the near future, um, you said we can rely on our telescopes. And what could our telescopes tell us about the composition, the atmosphere of this planet? Well, I like to think of 186F as a, as a house. Okay, so we, we, there's a place there that we could, something could be living in. So how can we tell if anything is living? Well, let's look in the windows. What would we look for? We would look for oxygen. That would be the first step. If you look at Earth from space, that's the clearest, most robust signal of life on Earth is the presence of oxygen. Now, it's not a very reliable signal because it's only been present on Earth history for the last two billion years. But if we looked at 186 with a spectrometer that measures the wavelengths of light and we saw the characteristic light from oxygen, that would be very exciting. I would take that as pretty compelling evidence that there was life on that world that made the oxygen, just like there was life on Earth that made the oxygen that we breathe. But wouldn't that apply also to carbon dioxide? If you had a carbon dioxide signature, you would assume that a living organism produced the CO2. Well, carbon dioxide is more tricky. The O in oxygen comes from CO2, but if we look at Venus and Mars, they have carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide on Earth is indeed controlled by life and exchanged by life, but just seeing it on 186F would not be an indication of life. Oxygen, on the other hand, would be a very strong indication of life. If we saw both carbon dioxide and oxygen, and suppose we saw a little bit of methane in the mix too, that would be really compelling evidence of life because there's no way you're going to get that mix of gases unless you've got things producing oxygen and other things producing methane, like termites and cows. So it introduces a, a whole new level of understanding of the biology. But what we think we could do and what could be done even in the next decade with a spectrometer in space is looking for oxygen. So I would push very hard as the follow-up 
mission to Kepler's discovery of 186F as a spectroscopy instrument to search for oxygen on that world. Well, for a long time, Mars was considered the premier candidate for the possibility of life off Earth, and you've supported that theory for a long time. Has Kepler 186F stole the thunder of Mars? I mean, is it now the, the number one candidate, and where's Mars in this lineup? Well, it's an interesting question. Let me tell you my lineup. I have five worlds that I would like to study. Uh, Mars is on the list, but so is Europa, so is Enceladus, so is Titan. So those are the four worlds that were on my list previously. Now I've added 186F. So those are the five worlds that I think are the, the big five for astrobiology, and I think we should be studying all of them. Now, if you say, well, which one is number one? If I could hop into a little spacecraft and go to any of them, which one would I go to first? My answer right now, based on our current knowledge, would be Enceladus. That's the one I would go to first. And I'd go there for two reasons. One is it's got a plume of material coming out into space that I could fly right through. I could just fly right through, stick out my hand, and grab a sample on the way back. <laughs> well, we should say that Enceladus is the moon of Saturn. That's right. Okay. And so small that, moon of Saturn. Small moon of Saturn. And that would be your number one choice because of this discovery of, of these geysers. Exactly, which makes it so easy to get a sample. I don't have to bring a drill. I don't have to get uh, do a lot of work and burrowing down into the ground. Okay. I just fly through the plume and stick out my hand and catch it. But the second reason, which in some sense is more important, is in that plume— we see that all the requirements for life, all the basic requirements for life are present. There's liquid water, evidence that the plume comes from liquid water, there's organic material, there's biologically available nitrogen, and there's biologically available energy. All the big four requirements for life, water, energy, carbon, and nitrogen are met. And so this plume is coming from a place that, as far as we can tell, is habitable. Say more about the presence of organic material in this plume, and why is that not synonymous with life? Why is that just a building block of life, and where might that come from? Right. The way, the way I would characterize life is that it's made of organic material and lives in water. But we know that organic material can also be produced by chemistry. And we see in meteorites, like the one that just fell a couple years ago here in California, the Sutter's Mill meteorite, falling from space, full of organic material, and there's no evidence that it's biology in it at all. Such as what? What kind of organic material? Well, we find, for example, amino acids in meteorites. Amino acids are what proteins are made out of. So they're in our body, but they're also in meteorites. So we can't conclude that there's life just from detecting organics. So carbon is an organic? Well, an organic... Technically speaking, an organic compound is a carbon-containing compound that is in which carbon is not in the oxidized form. So CO2 is not organic, CO is not organic, or carbonates are not organic. Carbon makes an incredible diversity of compounds, most of which life doesn't care about. Life only uses a few of them, and it carefully selects the ones that it uses. So humans are carbon-based life forms? Carbon-based life forms living in liquid water. That's the way I would describe it. So that's, that's what we that's would hope you, to find. That's how you define humans? Carbon-based yep, life forms yep, living exactly, in water? Exactly. <laughs> Some of my best friends are carbon-based life forms. <laughs> now, there's been new gravity data from the Cassini spacecraft that has um, supported the evidence of um, an unknown ocean, or maybe now it's a known ocean, on the moon Enceladus. Can you give us an overview of those data and 
how gravity measurements have um, provided additional evidence that there may be an ocean. The first thing we discovered on Enceladus was the plume. So here we see a jet of ice coming out. Then the analysis of the particles in the plume indicated the presence of salt and other chemicals that are consistent with it coming from an ocean. So at that point, I was convinced that there was an ocean, that the plume was coming from an ocean. Now, the gravity data has confirmed that there's a layer of material below the surface that's denser than the ice, a little bit denser than the ice. Well, water is a little bit denser than ice, so it fits perfectly. So that's now further evidence that there's an ocean. I think now we really have a compelling story that the plume that we see on Enceladus is coming from an ocean, a subsurface ocean. So, Chris, taken together, the discovery of 186F and additional evidence supporting the ocean on Enceladus, as these discoveries unfolded, and it did seem like one came after another, how did the news reverberate through the astrobiology community? I know that you all have to be very careful about what you can say and what you can't, but does it feel like an exciting time? I mean, does it feel different than it did a few years ago? What's the chatter that's going on? Well, it is an exciting time, and there is a lot of chatter, and sometimes people jump to conclusions as to that are way ahead of the data. Uh, scientists or the public? Both. Scientists do it too. <laughs> uh, I'm constantly reviewing papers where people are overstating their interpretations. It's a, I consider it the occupational hazard of astrobiology is to jump to the conclusion that you really want to be true. You really want there to be life there, and so we do have to be careful and separate what we think is true and what we would like to be true from what we can show is true. It is a, I think, a multi-generational search. We have to consider this not as something that we as individuals do, but we as a civilization do. We are searching for life beyond the Earth in all forms, intelligent, unintelligent, nearby, far away, and we have to view that as a long-term search that we are taking steps on, but we shouldn't be disappointed if it takes decades to to do the search, and maybe many, many, many decades. Well, have you had a moment recently where you read some data or you heard a bit of news, uh, discovery, and you shouted hooray or yes, or you high-fived one of your your colleagues? Well, I I, uh, do think that 186F was a as they say, as a hooting and a hollering moment. It was that's great to have something so earth-like. I'm trying uh, to get a picture of you um, breaking the mode of cautious. Yeah, it's hard for me scientists. to do. You know, I've been doing this too long to get too excited. But uh, but 186F was a big news. I think Enceladus, the plumes of Enceladus, were very exciting. And uh, if we if on Mars, Mars has been somewhat disappointing. The Curiosity mission has uh, not really found a rich, organic, rich sediments. They found sediments, but they weren't organic rich. If another mission were to go there and drill deeply and find some material that was, say, 1% organics, that would be an exciting time. Well, finally then, Chris, what does it matter whether or not we find life elsewhere in the universe? And let's say we do find it on 186F. Why is that an important discovery, or how might that change us? It's interesting when you think about how will discovering life in other worlds affect us. In a sense, it will confirm what we already know. When I talk to the public, they already know there's life out there. They have the assumption that the universe is full of life. And they're basically saying, why are you scientists so slow in getting the data to support it? 
So I think if we, if I were to show up to a public talk and say, we now have firm evidence of life on 186F in the form of oxygen measurement, people would just nod their head and said, yeah, well, of course. Uh, tell us something we don't know. Right? So in, in a sense, science is trying to catch up with the popular culture. Can I make a bet that if, if we do find life, if you do find life out there, that you will break some of your composure and, and high-five one of your colleagues. Well, we'll have to see. <laughs> I hope you're there when it happens. Chris McKay, thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Chris McKay is a space scientist at NASA Ames. In the last two interviews, scientists have made a pitch for follow-up missions to pursue the encouraging leads in astrobiology research. One is TESS, and the other is the James Webb Space Telescope. And they're under construction, or almost under construction, and indeed, they might be suitable for looking for things like oxygen in the atmospheres of nearby exoplanets, but they wouldn't be very good at, for example, finding oxygen in the atmosphere of Kepler-186f. It's just a tiny little dot of light next to a bright star 500 light years away. That requires something bigger. And that was Chris McKay's wish, to have a spectrometer in space that could look for oxygen on 186F. And he did say later that that idea is in the talking stage, and indeed it would be a separate mission. Yeah, that would be a very huge telescope in space, so uh, not quite yet on the drawing boards. Something that's in our nearby future, that's another target that Chris McKay mentioned, a moon of Jupiter. It's about 400 million miles away. It's covered with ice. We want to drill into it. So how do you do that? How do you solve a problem like Europa? It's a new hope for life in space from Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. As a sequel to 2001, A Space Odyssey, Arthur C. Clarke wrote 2010, Odyssey 2. One of the missions is to salvage the spaceship Discovery, which has been sent to Jupiter, and to investigate the mysterious monolith discovered by the astronaut Dave. And that smooth-talking computer Hal? Well, he's back in 2010. As the rehabilitated ship Discovery approaches Jupiter, Hal relays an important message. All these worlds are yours except Europa. Attempt no landing there. You can read the book or see the film to understand the meaning of this mysterious transmission. And even then, you might not understand it. But in reality, not only do scientists want to land on Europa, they want to dig through its icy skin to look for life. Let's put aside for the moment the question of when we might send a spacecraft to that moon. We'll get to that. But the surface of Europa is thick ice, miles thick. So how do you break through that ice so you can sample the water underneath? Private companies who are anticipating a Europa mission have already begun pursuing competing techniques. One, melt the ice. The other, skip the melting and drill, baby, drill. 
Both have merits, and we won't know for some time which approach, if either, is chosen. But engineer Victoria Siegel from Stone Aerospace in Texas says her company has already opted for and begun testing a scheme to melt the ice. Vicki, you're in Alaska to test out a drill, but you're not looking for natural gas or oil or anything like that. What are you doing? We're going to be testing new technology to melt into ice. And the reason you're trying to do that is because... Uh, because we would like to do a mission to Europa and penetrate the ice on Europa to look for life. So how does this drill work? I mean, is it just like, a, you know, a drill I'd use to find water in my backyard? Uh, no. Instead of a, a mechanical drill that spins, it's a heated device that will allow us to melt down into ice in a controlled way. But it takes a lot of heat to melt through, I don't know, what might be 10 miles of ice. Where, where do you get the heat from? In this case, we're getting the heat from... Uh, a laser source, actually. We're shining laser light into a fiber optic line, much like you, you know, get maybe you get uh, internet service through fiber optic. The light exits the, the fiber optic line and heats up a, basically a big chunk of aluminum, and that hot aluminum is what melts its way into the ice. So you have the power supply for this up on the surface of Europa, and then there's a, f- a glass fiber that goes down to where the, the drill bit is, if you will, that's doing the melting, so you pump the energy down to where the drill is. Correct. Okay, so where, where do you get the energy on the surface? <laughs> Solar cells, where? <laughs> right. A mission to Europa will most likely require a, a nuclear power source of some kind, and so you can either do the heating with the nuclear power source on board, the, the cryobot is the word that we use for the, the robot that melts down. Or you could use the nuclear power source on the surface and do the same trick with shining laser light into a, into a glass fiber. So if I understand this correctly, the heating element is down in the ice, working its way farther down, and it's unspooling optical fiber behind it. Presumably you also use that fiber to uh, get the data, whatever it finds, that information back up to the surface. Correct. Okay, sounds good. Why is this better than just using an ordinary drill with, uh, you know, drill bits like people do all the time? There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that mechanical things have failure points. You know, something, if you're, if you're going to send something to Europa, you're not going to be able to have a me- mechanic go and, and fix it. You know, any, anytime you add moving parts to a system, you, you add a, a potential failure point. So this kind of passive melting is simple in, in a lot of ways. Um, I believe there are other people working on mechanical systems, uh, but it's not something that we've focused on. Okay, well then, finally, Vicki, nobody's yet written the check to send your drill or anybody else's drill to Europa or to land anything there. This is kind of a long-term investment for your company, isn't it? It is. We are actually sponsored by a NASA grant that wants to look at new technologies that could eventually be used to do a mission like that. If the technology for that mission is never developed, then no one is ever going to write that check. Well, Vicki Siegel, I want to thank you very much. And it's kind of interesting to talk to somebody who may be making the technology that's the first to find life in space. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Seth. Victoria Siegel is an autonomous systems engineer at Stone Aerospace in Texas. Okay, we're working on the technology for drilling into Europa, but let's not put the wheeled transportation device before the Equus. NASA has yet to commit to a mission to Jupiter's moon. But it is being discussed, and planetary geologist Cynthia Phillips, who has studied Europa for years, says that that gives her hope that one day she'll get a closer look at her favorite extraterrestrial habitat. Cynthia, people are trying to develop technologies to drill through maybe 10 miles of ice on a moon of Jupiter or Saturn. Why are they doing that? 
Well, drilling through ice can get you through the boring frozen layer at the surface down to a nice squishy liquid ocean layer beneath that. So are they going to actually take this to the outer solar system and, and you know, put their drill down on the ice and, and go looking for uh, maybe microbes or maybe something even better down below? Well, someday, absolutely. That's what we want to do. Eventually, we want to land on a moon like Europa, Jupiter's moon. We know that Europa has this thick ice layer at the surface, but under that ice, we're pretty sure there's this giant ocean layer of liquid water. There's actually more water on Europa than in all of Earth's oceans combined. So we're talking about a huge, huge reservoir. And if you're looking for life, you don't want to be looking at the cold, frozen ice layer. You want to be looking in the liquid. You want to get to that ocean, and drilling is our best way to do that. But isn't it possible, given the fact that Europa, and for that matter, Enceladus, a moon of Saturn, they both have geysers spewing stuff from maybe down below out into space where it's a lot easier to get than to land on the surface, isn't it? Well, that's true. And and Enceladus certainly has these great geysers ejecting material from near the South Pole. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like free samples. You, know, you can fly through there and just sample one of these plumes. But the thing is that in the process of ejecting material, that material is going to be modified. You know, so say, say that there are microbes or, you know, even perhaps giant squid or something down in this ocean. You know, you're not really going to be ejecting an entire giant squid into space. Maybe, you know, a few drops of squid spit or something like that. But you're not going to get the whole thing. You're not going to really understand the whole picture of what it's really like in that ocean. So drilling is the way to go. All right. Is there a mission in the works to go to Europa, for example, and do this? Well, NASA has been talking about a mission to study Europa for quite some time. The problem is that Europa, it's very far from the sun, so it's about five times further away than we are here on Earth. And the radiation environment there is crazy just because of Jupiter. So what's going on is that anything that lands on the surface of Europa or even that orbits Europa just gets fried by radiation from Jupiter's strong magnetic field. And so because of that, we have to be really, really careful when we're talking about designing a mission. So... Yeah, we've been talking about a mission to go back and study Europa. Actually, the mission we're talking about now wouldn't necessarily land on Europa. In fact, we're not even talking about orbiting Europa because, again, that radiation is just so insane there. Basically, what we would do is orbit Jupiter, but have a whole bunch of flybys where you get in really close around Europa, you point all your instruments at it, you take all your observations, and then you get away as fast as you can. You get out of that radiation field, you go where it's nice and safe, and then you have a nice kind of leisurely time to play back your data without frying your spacecraft. Okay, now is this the so-called Clipper mission? Because people may have heard of that. It's been in the news, the Clipper mission. It sounds like something romantic. It sounds like exploration. Right, right, yeah. So JPL has been working on defining this Europa Clipper mission, and it's just that. It's basically a mission that orbits Jupiter. It has a whole bunch of Europa flybys. It has a great suite of instruments to observe the surface, to do global mapping. And one of the most interesting instruments is one that would actually use a radar instrument to sound through the the ice layer to actually measure the ocean layer directly. What we're hoping is that an instrument like that could actually first check for once and for all if there is actually an ocean there. We're you know pretty, pretty sure, but not 100% positive. So it would confirm the ocean is actually there, and it would also tell us places where the ice layer is thicker or thinner. And that's really important for a future mission like a lander mission that drills. If you're landing on the surface and you bring a drill, you don't want to land somewhere where the ice happens to be super thick because you're never going to make it down to that liquid layer. So you have to do the initial reconnaissance just to figure out, 
where the places are where the ice layer is thin enough that a future lander mission with a drill on it would have some hope of getting down there. Okay, so Clipper, is it going to happen? And if so, when? I mean, when are they going to fly this thing? I'm sure you can't wait. Yeah. I really want to see Europa again before I retire. And I used to sort of say that as a joke, and now it's becoming, you know, something that actually has some meaning to it. I've been waiting for 15 years, Seth, for this mission. And we're closer than we've ever been before. And so we're ready. Basically, it needs the funding. And so what's the status? I mean, the the NASA budget is, well, I don't know, it's been treated better than people had expected. Yeah, I would say that it's like so close that I could almost taste it. So this summer, there's a couple of calls for information that NASA is putting out. So the Clipper mission comes in at a budget level that's pretty good, but it's still expensive. It's a flagship-level mission, which is the highest, most complex types of missions that NASA does. That's what, about a billion dollars? Yeah, this is actually about $2 billion. And so basically NASA has issued a challenge to the planetary science community to say, well, look, we can do this really, really great mission, this Europa Clipper, but let's see if you can cut it in half. What kind of a mission can you do for only a billion dollars? And so there's a call for information out to the community this summer for places like universities or companies to go through and see if they can actually design a Europa mission that meets the majority of the major science goals for only a billion dollars. And so we'll see. It's a great challenge. Well, I got to ask you the obvious. I mean, if there is life in Europa, it's underneath all that ice. And, you know, that ice is darn thick. It's miles and miles thick. It's going to be really dark down there. No photosynthesis. You know, how do I feed myself if I'm a bit of life under the uh, ice of Europa? That's actually a problem, right? So almost all life here on Earth depends on photosynthesis. So either directly, so it's, you know, it's, it's soaking up that sunlight and converting it into energy and powering whole ecosystem, or it's eating something that was powered by photosynthesis. But there is life on Earth, like, you know, microbes that live inside rocks, for example, that basically they don't use photosynthesis at all. What they use is just chemical energy from the rock itself. So it is possible for life to exist without the sun. Certainly on Europa, What we think is that a possibility is that you could have life, say, down at the bottom of this ocean layer if you have something similar to the hydrothermal systems here on Earth. If you have eruptions of, say, like, you know, warm material coming out of that base of that rock layer, coming up with all sorts of interesting, you know, chemical fluids and stuff in there, maybe that would be tasty for life. Sounds like the bottom line is... There may be life there, but we shouldn't expect, you know, tuna or sharks or anything uh, too big because the food supply is somewhat uh, constricted. Yeah, probably not. And again, I would love to find giant squid or something like that in (laughs) Europe. It'd be really cool. Or, you know, glowing octopuses like in Europa Report or something like that. It'd be fabulous. And the thing is, we can't rule it out. But if you just look at the amount of energy that we think is available for life on Europa, probably we're looking at microbes. Probably there just isn't enough energy to sustain anything really big. But we've been surprised before. Cynthia Phillips, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Seth. Cynthia Phillips is a planetary geologist at the SETI Institute. Well, lots of exciting science. More than a half dozen habitats that we know about already in our own backyard, our own solar system. And these promising leads, according to the scientists, require follow-up missions. Yes, but you got to find the money. You testified before Congress, Seth. What sort of support did you sense that Congress was giving towards science in general, astrobiology in particular? Well, my impression is that they find it interesting and therefore possibly worthwhile. I mean, this requires new money, but it sounded like they were paying attention. But that doesn't mean that they'll necessarily fund it. And just remind us of the NASA numbers, can you? Yes. Well, funding is a different matter, of course. That's politics, always unpredictable. But the total NASA budget is about $17 billion. 
but of that, really less than one-third goes toward basic scientific research. Okay, less than one-third. Yeah, so maybe $5 billion. Although $5 billion seems like a lot of money. Yeah, but the thing is that most of that budget's already committed to existing ongoing projects that are sucking up the majority of it. The wiggle room for new initiatives is always small in everybody's budget. Okay, so the budgetary dilemmas continue. Well, thanks to a production team that never presents us with a dilemma and always gives us hope, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Molly Sharlock. Also support from Google, Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to a new hope for life in space. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website, where you will also find a link to other shows on astrobiology. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you just like the way broadcasts can drill through the atmosphere, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, a suggestion? Well, write us at bigpicturescience at SETI.org. We'll definitely get back to you. We also go for flattery. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.